Let me invite you this morning, make your way to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter number 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're continuing in our uh, study of the book of 1 Timothy, coming through it verse by verse, and, and uh, we're going to pick up this morning here in verse number 8, and we will come down through verse number 11. And so uh, we're looking at 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. Uh, the title of the message this morning is God's Law is Good. God's law is good, and we'll see the context of this and hopefully bring out some things that would uh, encourage us and uh, give us understanding as well. Notice with me, if you would, in 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and for their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What do we think of when we hear that little phrase, the law? The law. We probably think of maybe the laws of our own land, the laws that are in place in our own nation that we're to follow and not break. Some of those laws may be pretty simple to follow. Others may be a little more challenging. Some laws are just outright ridiculous. I think we'd all agree that there are some laws that are ridiculous and I, I looked up some that I thought were kind of interesting, and I'll share them with you. In Arizona, it's illegal to feed pigs garbage without a permit. Well, I don't know the reasoning behind that, but I thought, man, that's a crazy law. In California, if a frog dies during a frog jumping contest, it's illegal to eat that frog. <laughs> Leave it to California to make a crazy law about frog jumpers. In Colorado, it's illegal to modify the weather without a permit. I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> if we could modify the weather, I think I'd be trying to do that a little bit, but I don't know how all that works, but they come from business insiders, so that's the source. If they're wrong, then take it for face value what they say. But that made me think about law for a moment. Coming to this text, why some of these laws come about, I have no clue. Some may have good reasons, while others may have absurd reasons. But when we hear of God's law, there's a distinction here. We hear of God's law, we probably think of all the commands given in the Old Testament, and that most certainly is the law of God in a nutshell. The word law is used by Paul here, may refer to a procedure or practice that has taken hold, a custom, rule, a principle, or norm, or a constitutional or statutory legal system, both of which you could say are uh, applicable to the law of God in the Old Testament. Now, when the Old Testament comes up, many people shy away from that part of the Bible. Say, so, well, why is that? Many tend to think that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the law, is harsh, uncompassionate, judgmental, and cruel. They view the laws of the Old Testament as cruel, legalistic, absurd forms of religion for the Jewish people. But little do they know that the God of the Old Testament is actually the same God of the New Testament. 
The God of grace and mercy is also the God of law and justice. You see, in the days of the early church, the law of God was a source of many contentions and divisions. And it still is today a source of many contention and divisions, largely from many who don't understand the law, just like those in Timothy, or how to apply it. And I think it's important here we recall the context of this particular passage, that Paul has urged Timothy on the importance of doctrine in the local church. Doctrine is the teaching, the substance of truth that is believed and taught. He urged Timothy in this because of false teachers who were being taught in verse 7, who were teaching, they were people who were desiring to be teachers of what? Of the law. Without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So you understand the undergirding context here of Paul's correction is the law of God. And it's misunderstanding and misapplication by these false teachers. Now what we find here is that since some did not properly understand the law and taught it wrongly, does that mean the law itself is bad or should be avoided by even the church? Not in the slightest. There is a proper understanding and application of the law for the church. And here's the first and foremost thing I want us to point out, and it's really in the title of the message and really the overall thrust of this. Number one in our notes today is the goodness of the law. Paul says plainly right here, we know that the law is good. It is not bad. It is not evil. It is not scary. It is good. It is good. Why is the law good? Well, the first aspect I want to bring to your attention about why the law is good is that the law is good because of its source. What is the source of the law of God? It is God himself. It is God. He says, now we know the law is good in verse 8. Now, that statement makes it clear that Paul is not against the law of God. He is against the misuse of God's law. But pause there and just consider that statement. The law is good. Why might the law of God be good? Well, it is first and foremost good because the God who gave it is good. The God who gave it is good. You see, the law of God directly reveals and is inseparable from the character and nature of God. His word, his law, reveals his moral, perfect excellence. It reveals his nature to us. Now, what do we know about the character and nature of God? We we hear this all the time. It's such a fundamental truth about the attributes of God. It is this, is that God is good. And all the time, God is good. David wrote in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see. That the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, his goodness is manifested and proclaimed through all of the scriptures. From beginning to the end. What does it mean that God is good for a moment? God's goodness is the perfection of his nature and moral excellence. You see, a thing is good to the extent that it is all that it can and should be. Namely, perfect. God alone is all that he can and should be. He is wholly perfect, lacking nothing. He is the supreme 
and absolute good. Good is what He is. See, the goodness of God is the ground for all good that we receive from Him and through Him. Now, would we expect that which comes from the God who is perfectly good to not be good itself? Absolutely not. We think of even creation for a moment. When God created all things in the very beginning, at the end of His creation, Genesis 1.31 tells us that God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was what, church? Very good, very good. And there was evening in the morning, the sixth day. God's creation ushered forth, and it was very good. He didn't create a bad creation or a flawed creation. He created a very good creation. Now, God allowed His creation and His plan, and even mankind, to be subject to sin. But that does not change the fact that what came from God was good and is good. Now, there's a little difference between creation and man and the law of God. You and I were subject to sin. Creation was subject to sin. The law of God and what is morally perfect and excellent, it is not subject to sin. It cannot be tainted by sin. You see, God allowed this. And, and what we find here is that God give, what God gives and what God does is good. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.68, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes or your law. Because God is good and He does good, teach me your statutes and your law. So when it comes to the Word of God, specifically the law of God in this context, would we expect it to somehow not be good, though it comes from Him who is perfectly good? Absolutely not. See, not only does Paul say here in our text that the law is good, he says it elsewhere too in Romans chapter 7, and verse 12. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God alone is good. Because the law reflects his perfect and moral goodness, the law itself is good too. Greg Bonson rightly comments and quotes here, and I like this quote. He says, because the law is the law of God, it is good as God is good. Therefore, to impugn the goodness of the law is to impugn the goodness of God Himself. His Word reflects His character and nature. Now, there are many who view the law of God as not good. Even some Christians disregard the law as not as good, say, as the New Testament. <laughs> Let it be known and be clear today that both the Old and the New Testaments, of which we may say the whole is God's law and word and instruction, all of it is indeed good. All of it is good. There's not one part of it that is not good. And so Paul wants Timothy and the church in Ephesus to know this, the law is good. He even presupposes that they know this already, and they should know this already, as he says, we know that the law is good. Paul would have taught them the goodness of the law when he ministered there, and now he urged them to remind them of this truth in spite of those who were misusing and abusing the law in its unintended way. Notice letter B. Not only is the law good because of its source, it is also good because of its substance. This ties directly into what we mentioned about God's character and nature. What God has given in His law is good, not simply because it came from Him, that is the chief reason, 
But because the law in its essence is what good is. The goodness of God's law, the substance of it, is seen and magnified in the law being rightly understood and rightly used. Notice that Paul says in verse 8, he says, We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it lawfully, and I think this is very important for us. What is the problem in Ephesus at this present time? Those who were using the law unlawfully, who were adding to it and taking away from it and not using it as it's intended to be used. So well, what does it mean to use the law lawfully? It means to use it properly or rightly, legitimately. This directly ties into what Paul stresses to Timothy later in his second letter about how to handle the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 2.15, he says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, if one can must rightly handle the word of truth, or say the law of God in this context, that means it can also be wrongly handled, wrongly applied. And by the way, Paul gives that command to Timothy about rightly handling the word of truth. What scriptures did Paul, did Timothy use primarily in his day in the church? Was it a complete New Testament that you and I hold in our hand? No. The Bible of the early church is the Old Testament, which contains the law of God. You say, people say, well, you just can't get the gospel in the Old Testament. You don't see Jesus in the Old Testament. Man, they just don't know anything about the Old Testament then. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. The law points us to Jesus. We'll get to that more in a moment. But you understand that it was the Old Testament, the law of God. They were the primary scriptures of the early church used in worship before the completion of the New Testament. Now, we are so blessed today to have both Testaments complete and whole in one volume. What a wonderful book we have. The Word of God. So you understand the Ephesians, they heard often the law of God and were taught the law of God and how to apply it in its right context. And this is why Paul writes this part of the letter, because these false teachers were not teaching and applying God's law correctly. They were using the law as really a launch pad to turn out these tales of ancestors and genealogies, and they were robbing the law of its convicting power and its use. If these teachers had used the law as a means of leading their hearers to Jesus, Paul would have been absolutely fine with them because they would have been teaching the right thing. But we recall in verse 4, what have they been doing? Their hearts were lured away after myths and endless genealogies. See, God's law does not contain myths and endless, endless genealogies. It contains absolute truth. So you understand that to add to his law is to distort the substance of the law and its intention. And this was a grave error condemned in the law of God itself. What did God urge his people in his own law? Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. That's a fundamental principle in the Old and New Testament. You don't take away from the Word and you don't add to a Word. You know why that is? Why must nobody add or take away from the law of God? Because it is already perfectly good in all of its substance. 
It's perfectly good in all of its substance. There is nothing lacking in the law of God, and there is nothing overstated in all of the law of God. You cannot improve upon the law of God. Man cannot improve the word of God. It doesn't need more. It doesn't need less. It needs all that has been given. The whole of the substance of God's law is perfect and is given to accomplish his purposes. Now, when one reads and sees the law of God in its right context and applications, the law is indeed a good and beautiful thing to behold. I want you to see with me in Psalm chapter 19, David's description. Go with me in your Bible to Psalm 19. We'll turn to a couple passages today that may help tie a few things together. But I want you to see what David says about the law of God. He says in verse 7 through verse 10, he says, The law of the Lord is what? Perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honey comb. You read David's description of the law of God. Is this the description most would give the law of God or the Old Testament today? Not really. But yet, this is how David, the man after God's own heart, describes the law of God in the Old Testament. It is perfect and accomplishes the glorious purposes of God and His people. It is of great value, he says, more to be desired than gold. His law is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. How true this must be. See, God's people must love the whole of God's law and word. Why? Because all of his law reveals how gloriously good and righteous and holy and just our God is. Now, I understand the negative aspect of the law because of its condemnation to us. But the flip side of this is the glory of who God is and ultimately how we see Christ in it. Psalm 119, 127 through 28 says, the psalmist says, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Christian, you ought to love the law of God. And you ought to hate every false way. There is a righteous indignation we ought to have against evil that God has. And demonstrated in the Lord Jesus and here in the psalmist. You see, the law was a gracious gift to Israel in ancient times. And it is a gracious gift to the church today preserved for us. See, the substance of the law is to be used in a lawful or right manner. And that principle goes to the whole of the scriptures. Because just as the law is being misused and misapplied in the days of Timothy and Ephesus, so can anyone misuse and misapply the whole of God's word today. So this is our caution. Notice with me number two. I'll have you note the goal of the law. I'm going to give you just a, a couple 
a couple maybe uh, uh, instances in which we see the usage of the law. The usage of the law. Now, there's, there's deeper and wider aspects of the law we could dive into. We don't have time because the subject of the law of God, it really is deep and wide. It's, it's interwoven in various facets. And many disagree on some of the minor points of the law, and that's fine. But notice with me the first aspect or goal of the law, which it does, is letter A, is that the law does this. The law reveals the sinfulness of man. That is probably the chief and primary usage of the law is it reveals the sinfulness of man. It reveals it. Now, Paul doesn't go into an exhaustive exposition of the law in this passage. He addresses it more in detail in other books like Romans and Galatians. But here he does give an overall explanation of the law being used lawfully. In verse 9, he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless. Now, we'll come back to this little statement about it not being laid down for the just in more detail later. But central to Paul's point here is this, is that the law is for the lawless. Well, who are the lawless? They are the opposite of those who are the just, which refers to believers who have been made righteous in Christ, have been justified in Him. See, the lawless are the lost, unregenerate sinners who break the law of God. In fact, what is sin? In its most basic essence, I should ask my Sunday school class this because that's what we covered this morning. That is if they're listening. I hope y'all are listening. But if you're not, you're going to get it now. What is the basic, most basic essence and description of what sin is? Sin is transgression or the breaking of the law. The law. The law of God. John the Apostle wrote this. 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, what does he mean that someone is lawless? It means they are not acting in accordance to the law. They break the law. They are those who are not committed to the law or any standard. Some versions translate this as sin is the transgression of the law, which is true. What is meant by lawless? And so here's what we understand, church, is that Every sin a person commits breaks the law of God in one way or another. Even in the very beginning with the very first man, Adam, he was given a law that he was to obey and not disobey. God said to Adam, of all these trees you can eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you may not eat. For the day you eat of it, you'll die. And what did Adam and Eve do? They broke the law of God. They disobeyed his command, revealing their sin that now they now possess. You see, without the written law of God, how would we know how sinful mankind really is? And we may say our conscience bears witness to the law of God. Yes, it most certainly does. But our conscience is not an exhaustive witness of the law of God. You see, the law of God as given in the Scriptures reveals the exceeding holiness of God as it reveals the exceeding sinfulness of man. Do you know why we stress how holy God is? Because we are so sinful. Those two complement each other in their revelation. We see how sinful we are when we see how holy God is. Romans 7, 7, Paul said this, what shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known that it is to covet 
what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, Paul here lays out a list describing groups of sinners and the sins they commit. He says in verse 9, saying that the law is for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. He gives three pairs of adjectives here referring to people who are moral rebels, who willfully break the law and refuse to obey its authority. They are outwardly disobedient. They disregard God's will for their lives as revealed. They are inward scoffers who irreverently trample upon the name of God by trampling upon His law. Now, the rest of this list, as you look at this list, much of it correlates to the Ten Commandments regarding sins that relate to fellow man. Paul mentions, notice this, Paul mentions those who strike their mothers and fathers. Some translations have this as those who kill their fathers and mothers. It could go either way with that word strike. What law of God might this break when you think of the law of God in the Old Testament? Exodus 20, 12. Honor your father and your mother. To strike them, to kill them, to dishonor them breaks the law of God. He mentions here murderers calling out the command of God in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. Exodus 20 and verse 13. Paul in verse 10 calls out the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality. I don't know where these people today say, well, the Bible says nothing about homosexuality. It says everything about homosexuality. The Old Testament calls it an abomination. You say, well, that's just an Old Testament thing. No, it's a New Testament thing. But it's not just homosexuality. It says sexually immoral. See, these sins are sexual sins that violate the seventh commandment that forbids sexual activity outside of marriage. You shall not commit adultery. Sexual sin is not limited to someone who is married and then steps out. It's also those who have not been married yet partake in sexual activity. It's called fornication, which we get the Greek word there, pornea, ties directly into pornography. Sexual sin. And sexual sin is all the more common today. It's all the more accepted today, but it doesn't change the fact that it is still a violation, a transgression of the law of God for which we must all give account. Paul mentions enslavers here, which refers to kidnappers or those that take people against their will. Such a tragedy it is to hear of kidnappings. Such vile people do such things. It is a violation of the law of God. Kidnapping in the Old Testament under the commonwealth of Israel, it was a capital offense. You did such a thing, you got the death penalty, along with many other things. What law might that refer to? I think it's pretty plain. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. You're taking someone that isn't yours. Taking something that's not yours. Paul then goes on to mention liars and perjurers. God says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You notice that lying here, that's something that is often held as a, a small sin, is still a violation of the law of God which man is accountable. And you know how serious it is? God mentions it in Revelation and says that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. You think lying is not a big deal? Go read Revelation 20. And you'll see that lying is a big deal. You know why it's a big deal? Because all sin is a big deal against our holy God. 
Even the smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against our Creator. Jonathan Edwards rightly said. And you'll notice that Paul, he doesn't specifically mention the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, but I'm pretty sure it's covered in this little statement. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Why does Paul mention these specific groups of sinners and their sins? Because the law of God exposes them for what they are. Now, they, that some of these sins may be normalized by a society steeped in depravity, much like our own. But that doesn't change the fact that the violation of God's law brings condemnation upon their souls. They are accountable to the God who has given His law. You see, God has given His law to reveal the sinfulness of man's heart and life and to reprove their heart, and life. You see, when you look at the law, the grace of God shines through the law as it points us to the need of justification, to the need of salvation. And someone other than us, because we can't keep the law to save ourselves. It's not possible. Say, so how in the world is the, God's law an act of grace and mercy? It seems so cruel and condemning. You understand that God could have left a man with no law that reveals his sinfulness and how truly holy he is. He could have left us all to trod our wicked path on to destruction and still been all the good God that he is. But instead he gave his law for the benefit of his people. Romans 3, 19 through 20. Paul writes and says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, one of the great misuses of the law is not only what they were doing in Ephesus, but also to use the law as a means of justification, as if, if I keep the law, then I'll be justified. Oh, what a tragic prospect that is because none of us can do that. The law reveals our need of justification. And what the people in Ephesus were doing were diluting it to where it was not showing their need that they had. Notice with me, secondly, a use of the law. I think we see, and especially regarding Israel, but I think there's modern application we can glean from it is that not only does the law reveal the sinfulness of man, but the law restrains the sinfulness of man to a degree. Another known use of the law is that of civil restraint to evildoers. And this is evident for the people of Israel under the Old Covenant. The laws of God for them in that covenant were intended to restrain or curb evil from running rampant among the people without any consequence. What kept people from openly and without any shame, murdering and stealing and raping and doing all the things that they've, their sinful nature might cause them to do. What makes them not do that? It's the law of God. So why is that? Because God's law demanded justice for evil. And under the old covenant, many of those sins were punishable by death. You steal a child, death penalty. You kill your parent, death penalty. The death penalty runs... Rampant through the Old Testament law. 
But I want you to understand as we look at that law, we can glean principles beyond Israel to the purpose of right laws in general. Looking at these sins listed by Paul, you'll notice that he mentions the most extreme forms of defiance and evil. He condemns the kinds of sins that many civil laws prohibit. In fact, according to Roman law, many of these vices were punishable by death in that day and time. The law has a serious purpose in restraining wicked behavior. Now, I know that we are not ancient Israel. We are not under that old covenant. But the law of God and what is morally right hasn't changed under the new covenant. God said in the new covenant, I would write my laws on your heart. Now, there is a distinction between the two, but there is a continuity between the two as well. That's a whole deeper issue that needs some ironing out, but we don't have time for that. But here's what we understand, is that the standard of righteousness in God and what He's revealed, it doesn't change. And it still can be gleaned even for today. Laws of the land enforced by the government should be good laws. What would you prefer opposite of that? Do you want evil laws? No. I prefer good laws. Good laws grounded in the law that is good. Now, Paul mentions to the Romans how they should respond to their civil authorities and what those civil authorities should be doing at the same time. If you look at Romans just for a moment, briefly, very briefly, Romans 13, verse 1 through 5, you'll notice that he gives them instruction, which is good for us to heed today. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he who does not bear the sword in vain, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, I think we all know that Rome was not a godly nation or power. And yet we here see the governing authorities are to be God's servant for your good, he says to the church. They are to be the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What does that teach us about evil in crimes committed among society? There should be punishment and fear of that punishment on wrongdoing. Can you ponder just for a moment, what if there was no law? What if there was no punishment at all? Imagine for a moment no laws in our own nation. With, uh, with no laws, there would be no punishment. And with no laws and no punishment, there is no restraint for evil men to commit the grossest acts without thinking twice about it. Without law, you have anarchy. It would be in our barbaric and exceedingly sinful land. You say, well, it's already exceedingly sinful in your land. Yes, I agree with that. How much more exceedingly sinful would it be without any law to curb the wickedness of men? There's a movie out, movie series out there called The Purge. Anybody ever heard of it? Don't tell me if you've watched it. 
But anyway, I, I've seen the trailers for it. And it's a movie that portrays a scenario where one day of the year in the United States of America, there's no laws and no punishment for those laws that would be broken. You know what happens on that one day of the year? Everyone goes crazy, killing and stealing and doing everything under the sun they can possibly do that they have no punishment for in that particular day. Now understand, don't get me wrong, men still break the law of God. Law doesn't make people perfect, doesn't make people righteous, doesn't justify them. But the law has a curbing effect towards evil running rampantly without any kind of restraint. And here's the question of all laws and judgments in any nation or power. By whose standard is good to be defined for the laws and justice being implemented? What makes a wrongdoer truly a wrongdoer? Is it the standard of man or is it to be the standard of God? We know the answer to that. It is the standard of God. We know the answer to where the righteous standard is found. It is in the word of God. And by all means, we should expect, we should expect that. Now, I think it's understandable for us to see this, that we, we maybe cannot expect godless leaders to enact godly laws and justice. We need godly leaders, of course. But we have to call them when they're wrong to do what is right. If the church stays silent on issues of immorality... Nobody else is going to speak up. Is it wrong for abortion to prevail in our nation? Absolutely it is. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what the political talking points are. Murder is wrong. You see, God's law reveals to us what is right. And the law, in a sense, understand, curbs evil to a degree. It does not save, it does not... Get away, get, get, get rid of evil, but it curbs it to, an, to a degree. And I think it's good that most laws, even our own nation, they are rooted in the law of God. I'm thankful that it's against the law to murder. It's against the law to steal your car. It's against the law to do this and against the law to do that. Those are good things. But the point of the law is to give a particular fear to those who would seek to break it. Samuel Bolton rightly says this. He says, blessed be God. That there is this fear upon the spirits of wicked men. Otherwise, we could not, not well live in the world. One man would be a devil to another. Every man would be a Cain to his brother, an Ammon to his sister, an Absalom to his father, a Saul to himself, a Judas to his master. For what one man does, all men would do, were it not for the restraint upon their spirits. And I can tell you, the law should strike a fear in us. As Romans 13 tells us, we ought to have a respect for the laws in place so far as they're not against godly laws. I'll never forget the first time I was ever pulled over for speeding. Teenager coming home from Bible college. Get that, right? Doing 80 and a 55. I saw them blue lights, and I instantly was struck in my conscience. I knew. I thought, oh, my goodness. Here I am, a preacher. I'm going to go to jail tonight. <laughs> I, I thought my life was over. I was afraid. There's a certain fear I had for the law that I had broken. Law shows us that. See, without civil government, there would be anarchy. That is the only horrible alternative in which it lets evil run rampant. So understand, it is a lawful use of the law to inform sinners of their duty to God and man. 
this is another use of the law and should be applied in certain measures, in certain contexts. I'm going to say it that way. But you'll tie this together and see the goal of the law. It reveals the sinfulness of man. It restrains the sinfulness of man to a degree. But those two things understand, they're not what save in and of themselves. You can have all the laws you want that are godly in a land, but they will not save sinners. What does this bring us to? What does the law bring us to? Number three, this is where it all ties together for us. I want you to see the gospel and the law. The gospel and the law. And I want you to understand this principle. That the law is foundational to the gospel. The law is foundational to the gospel. Notice in verse 11 as Paul continues the sentence. The sentence hasn't stopped. It's continuing. He says in verse 11, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. What should be in accordance with the gospel? It is the proper teaching of the law of God that was being taught. This ties it all together for us, friend. The law and the gospel are not separated from each other, though many would have you to think that. People today say, oh, I just want the gospel. I don't need that Old Testament law stuff. You don't have a gospel without the law. There is no gospel without the law. Why is that? Because the law is what shows us our need of the gospel in the first place. People say, well, I just want the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can't have that without the law of God and condemnation first. The gospel message does not begin with God loves you. The gospel message begins with God's law has been broken by you. You are a sinner in need of Christ. God's law, broken law, is the basis of the gospel work of Christ. Ernie Reinsinger rightly said it this way, the spirit of the cross is eternal love, but the base of the cross is eternal justice. You understand the point of the law in every division of the Old Testament, the, the moral aspect, the ceremonial, the civil, all of it points to one person, Jesus. It all points to Christ, friend. The law of God reveals what we as sinners could never truly fulfill and what Christ alone has fulfilled. He has met the demands of God's holy and righteous law. And Paul says it this way in Galatians 3, verse 23 through verse 26. He says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The word guardian sometimes is translated as schoolmaster or teacher. What's Paul teaching here? He's teaching that the law is a teacher that leads us to Christ. Because if the law didn't lead to Christ, it only leads to condemnation. Because of Christ's perfect obedience to God's law, his atoning death for sinners, and his triumphant resurrection from death, Christ has freed his people from the condemnation the law put upon them for their sin. Paul says to the Roman church in Romans 8, 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from what? From the law of sin and death. You understand, if you don't know Christ today, you're bound to the law of sin and death. You're worthy of God's judgment for your sins and violating the law of God. But in Christ, when you know him by faith, he sets you free from that. Giving forgiveness to you and eternal life. You see, God's law is magnified in the gospel of Christ. By it, by, because through the gospel, we see Christ who kept it in its perfection. In its glorious state. The cross of Christ, Christian, it makes no sense whatsoever without the right understanding of the God's law behind it. And this is why the law was important to Paul, because he's been entrusted with the gospel. And so also has the church of God been entrusted with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. We preach the law to the extent that it condemns sinners and Christ is the Savior. But notice with me, letter B, that the law is applicable to the Christian also. Recall in verse 9 that Paul said, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. When Paul says the law is not laid down for the just, meaning the believer, the one who is righteous, he does not mean that the Christian has nothing to do with the law at all. Most certainly the law of God applies to the believer too in its right context and understanding. See, this passage is a focus upon the lawless, not the believer. But a proper understanding and use of the law is pertinent to the believer as indicated by the overall thrust of the passage. Why is Paul giving this passage? So that those in Ephesus and the church understand the importance of the law and its proper usage because they were being mistaught by it. By those who were adding myths and genealogies and whatsoever to it. They need to be reminded of using the law lawfully. That means they needed to understand the law rightly and apply it rightly. And so understand that, that, that one misuse of the law today by Christians is this. There's two basic major misuses, I think. One of them is called antinomianism. Big scary word. I gave you the definition. Antinomianism. What is it? It is the position that Christians are not bound by any law, whether related to religious practice or ethical behavior. This view may include the idea that salvation and freedom from the law permit believers to sin without consequence. Just because you're saved by grace does not mean that you're not to live godly. If you think you can be saved and go live like the devil, you're not saved to begin with. You see, God's grace and His mercy do not bring the law of condemnation upon us. It gives us the power and liberty to live out who we are supposed to live, how we're supposed to live in Christ. Antinomianism defeats that. Another misuse of the use of the law, on the opposite spectrum of this, is that of legalism. What is legalism? It's a disposition toward law and rule-keeping that emphasizes strict observance to the law and prizes obedience to the law above all else. I have seen both of these spectrums in Christianity today, and both of them are a ditch on either side of the road. Neither antinomianism nor legalism are biblical applications for the Christian. Both of them are ditches. Ernie Reisinger rightly says ignorance about the nature, design, and function of the law is at the bottom of a great deal of religious error today. 
You ever go to a church and they're so strict that they monitor what you're allowed to wear and what you're allowed to do with your life? Legalism. You ever go to a church and they just allow anything to go? Antinomianism. It's imbalance on both sides. We must understand that God's law is indeed applicable to the life of the Christian. We live out the law of God in our lives only in Christ alone and through Christ alone by His Spirit in us. Romans 8, 3-4 kind of communicates this truth. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled where? In us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The call to God's people today is to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And when you walk in the Spirit, you so fulfill the law of God. Now, that does not mean you'll be perfect in keeping every commandment and every little thing. That's not really a possibility in our human life. But it does mean that as we are growing and walking in Christ, He is working in us, sanctifying us more and more like His Son. Walking in the Spirit. Living our lives yielded to Him in a godly manner fulfills the law of God. Love fulfills the law of God. Gospel doctrine, you understand, has the same goal as that of God's law. For right doctrine always necessitates godly living. See, the Christian knows the law and sees it on this side of the cross through the beautiful lens of Christ's redemptive work and what He's done for us and in us. The new covenant has written God's law upon our hearts, and we are His people. And Jesus summarized the law of God for us in two great commandments. And I'll have you read these with me, and then I'm done, I promise. Matthew chapter number 22. It's 1138. You got time to eat, and the Super Bowl don't start until 8, 530, so I don't want to hear no mumbling. Matthew 22. Verse 37 through verse 38. Look at Jesus' summary that he gives to this man. He says in Matthew 22, verse... Let's just read verse 34 down through verse 40. He says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? What's the best one? What's the most important one? And here's what Jesus says to them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. You understand that that's not just a New Testament principle. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's Old Testament too. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice verse 40. On these two commandments depend all what? All the law and the prophets. So you want to live out the law of God in your life as a Christian? Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you do those two things, the rest fall all under that. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. And this must be our call, Christian. We must understand that. So the Christian, understand, he is to love the law of God as the holy and good law that it is. 
Jay Manchin said, The gospel does not abrogate God's law, but makes men love it with all of their hearts. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The Christian is to know the right use of the law. This is central to Timothy's charge here. And the church at Ephesus, because they were endangered by those who were desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The picture here is plain in 1 Timothy that God's law is good. Just because someone abuses it doesn't mean it's not good. Just because someone may misabuse the whole of the scripture doesn't mean the scripture is not good. God's law is good. And though it is good, it may be difficult to teach and be subject to abuse at times. Regardless, those in Ephesus were misusing the law of God in a detrimental way. And that church need to understand the proper use of the law and its connection to the gospel of Christ, and we need this understanding today. May we view the law of God as the beautiful word of God and His goodness and that leads us to the gospel of Christ. So think of how you view the law today. Do you view the law this way? Do you love His word, all of it, Old Testament and New? Do you truly understand the law's foundation to the gospel? Have you come in your own sinfulness to see in your own sinfulness revealed by the law of God your need of Christ today? If you don't know Christ, you are condemned by the law of God. But if you come to believe on Him today, you can be set free and justified, forgiven of your sins, and given eternal life in Jesus. May we ponder on those beautiful truths today. Let's stand to our feet. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. So many aspects that apply to your law and how it's applied today and how it applied back then. One thing we know, Father, is that you've given your law to reveal how exceedingly sinful we are and how marvelously holy you are that shows us our need of salvation. None of us can keep your law. None. Not one. There's none righteous. There's only one man who is truly righteous, and his name is Jesus. He fulfilled your law perfectly. He lived the sinless life that I could never live. If I was given a thousand lives to try, I would fail every time. But Christ did. Lived sinlessly on my behalf so that he could die on my behalf. He could pay the penalty of sin on my behalf. He could conquer death on my behalf. How glorious it is to know your salvation and to see the beauty of the law as you've given it. I pray that you'd help all of us to see that. And if there's any here tonight or today that does not know you, I pray that your law would strike their heart. Bring your conviction of condemnation over them that they see their sinfulness, your holiness, and their desperate need of Christ that they may believe and be saved today. In Jesus' name, amen.